Hello, Matthew Grant here, and it's great to have you back if you're one of our regular listeners, and if you just found us, well, that's fantastic too. But either way, uh, I think you're in for something of a treat today. We are piloting what is going to be the first in what we intend to be a new podcast series, and we are going to be exploring what is going on behind the stories that make the news in the world of insurance and risk just now all around the world. You're going to be hearing from leaders in technology, insurance companies, and those advising them. Uh, These people are going to have their own perspectives and in some cases direct knowledge of what's going on to help you figure out what is real and what is hype. Now we're going to be testing out some new ideas and some new formats for this podcast. It's a bit of a real-time experiment to see what works, what you like. Sure, we're going to have some stuff that won't work and maybe even stuff you don't like. We want to know though. Now we're even keeping the boundaries loose between the host and the guests. See if you can guess who is doing what for this one. Well, we've got three news stories coming up. We've got one interview from our roving reporter and a question from one of our regular listeners for the Instec podcast. Uh, There's a bit of other stuff in there as well we thought worth keeping. Well, I'm Matthew Grant from Instec. We've got Nigel Walsh from Google Cloud, who's up next. And we're joined by James Birch from Key Insurance and Bijar Patel from Aurora. Look, please let us know what you think, the good, the bad, anything in between. If you've got stories to share or you've got questions to ask, then track us down through the usual channels or Matthew Grant and Nigel Walsh on LinkedIn will find us. Love to hear what you've got to say. And if you want to record something, then we might even be able to get that into a future episode. We're going to be launching this podcast on its own channel soon. More details to follow. Nigel, over to you. Hey folks, I'm super excited to be back behind the microphone talking about all things cool, exciting and newsworthy in the world of insurance. And with that, I'm joined by some phenomenal friends in the industry. Bijal, why are you Hi Nigel. Well, I want to know what's going on as well. And I think this is a really good forum to cut through all the noise and see what's what I should be paying attention to. You should be in insurance with that sort of level of focus on risk, James. <laughs> Hi, Nigel. I've never been called cool before, so thank you very much for that. Why am I here? Honestly, I think that there's such an exciting uh, space right now, like more exciting than the last kind of five years that I've been in the industry. And I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to all the innovation and disruption that's going to happen in the market in the years to come. And finally, one half of the awesome duo that is Matthew and Robin. Matthew? Well, with the benefit of time travel, uh, we've actually cheated and recorded this intro. We've already had the discussion, and it was such a fantastic discussion. That's why I'm, I, why I'm here, because I know what we're going to be talking about. And it's just great to hear what's happening in the industry and get you know, three people, maybe count myself four, who really have got a, a perspective to bring that is very refreshing, positive, but actually fundamentally grounded in truth. With that, let's go on with the show. Well, Nigel, you had the idea for this. Just remind me, it was a long time ago we started talking about this. What are we going to be talking about today, and why are we doing this? So for me, I'm really keen to cut to the chase and find out what are the big news items out there. I love discussing the news. I'm passionate about the industry, as you know. There's so much going on. I always like talking about it with industry peers to see what's important to them, what we think is going to drive the biggest change. And today we're going to pick out three or four stories, probably more than to pick out one or two things from around the industry that have caught our attention, jump into a little bit more detail and share that with our uh, friends across the globe. So... On with the news, enough about us. Nigel, what's been grabbing your attention in the last few weeks? Not just because he's in the room, but actually Key, as a strong Google Cloud partner as well, continues to innovate and I think is one of my examples I use all the time of revolution in the market space and how folks can actually go build something from scratch and create a phenomenal business. James, before we hand to you, we sent out our raving reporter, Mr. Robin Mertens, who you all know and love, to speak to Mark Allen, CEO of Key. Let's pass to Robin now for a few snippets. Key now about three years old, 
Are you happy with how it's gone? We've been delighted with the success and three big factors stand out for me. Firstly, one of the questions at the outset that was leveled at us was, would brokers use a digital proposition? A resounding answer from our, our Lloyd's broker community is yes, they fully embraced our business model. The second question was, could it scale? We saw over 800 million of premium in our second year and on track this year for an, another good year of growth. And then really the underwriting performance Really proud to have reported an underwriting profit last year and be on track again this year for a really good underwriting result. And, and amongst that, we've stayed focused on our mission, really, of being data-led, digital first as a business model. You've had this per-risk smart follow space yourselves for a while, and it's only in the last few months that there's been rumblings and other people entering the market. Was that a surprise? Yeah, genuinely it was. Our inspiration was the blueprint to work at Lloyd's. Our original hypothesis was that we would see other digital syndicates launch when we'd gone to market. We were building key in lockdown in 2020. That was a very hard time for us to launch, to hire everyone remotely and launch remotely was quite a challenge. The only reason we were able to do it is because we had already started pre-COVID. So there was a period of 18 months, two years where it really meant other people weren't focused on this. And then if you come into 22, into 23, the market has shifted. We've had this hardening part of the cycle, continued loss events on the NatCat side and shifting market dynamics. That brings us into a different phase of the market where growth is more important or risk appetite is more important and the digitization story has fallen lower down people's list of priorities. It's certainly not something we've taken for granted. We welcome competition and look forward to where that can can take the, the space and take the Lloyd's market. Travellers and Aspen are, are partnering with you. How did that come about? And the idea really came around talking about 18 months ago with some of our big broker partners. We sat down and said, look, what, what do you like? What's not so good? How can we improve the experience? And really the, the resounding feedback was fantastic business model, really like the digital experience, it would be even more compelling having more capacity and in particular capacity from different providers. And since then, really, we've been working on that as a strategy and as something that we felt we could deliver. But that brings with it its own challenges. You're now effectively platform provider as well as doing this under your own capacity. What does that mean in practice for the business so we have the platform business, which is the, the digital broker platform and the algorithms. And then we have our own capacity and we have our partner capacity from Travelers and Aspen. It does increase the scope of management, if you like, for key. We think our technology is the best in the space and we think that's the right way for that marketplace to, to grow from here. We believe in strong lead capability. We're not trying to undermine that. What we want to do is transform the follow market and make it more efficient, more technical and more sophisticated. What's the longer term vision, particularly around getting other carriers? We're still focused on going live. So I know we made the announcement, but it's only uh, a business that, that you know, attaches from 1st of January 2024. So we're in the process of launching still. But we think this, this model is very much scalable. I and mean, there's a, a very large market for follow business in Lloyd's. And we hope that, frankly, that, that can result in growth for the market and growth for brokers that place business into Lloyd's. If we can transform that follow process from something that's 
slow and contains quite a lot of friction into something that is bringing really rapid extra capacity to the market, then we really hope that could reshape how how business is placed in the specialty market. We've certainly had some interest uh, from other carriers and we feel that there's room for more given the scale of the follow marketplace, but also want to respect these initial relationships that we form with Travelers and Aspen and there are launch partners and that means a lot to us that, that they've come to the table first. So you've had to go beyond insurance presumably to find some of your people. How do you go about getting these people and persuade them that you're the place to work? One of these myths is that technology business is all about technology. It's not. It's all about people. And platform doesn't operate without the people that are writing the code and managing the uh, the relationships with brokers or the process of binding through PPL. A lot of that process is the same as what other people go through in the market. We're very focused on this talent acquisition as an idea. It definitely helped at the start. We had some great collaborations. If We partnered with Google and with UCL, University College London. So that was a real positive from the start. We're very active on social media. We make sure that the outside world can see our culture and see it's very different. What's quite unique in our space is this ability to really have on kind of equal footing the underwriting skills, the technology, the, the software engineering skills, and the data science, actuarial, technical underwriting skills. And when we have people join the business, they say, oh, look, this is really, it's genuinely very different. I'm listened to as a specialist in my area. We feel part of the conversation. We know that the product and product in the technology sense, so we know that the the platform and the underwriting is all dependent and interdependent. We also try and you know, keep it quite a close-knit environment. It's quite a small team, we're about 200 people at the, at the moment. And it's a case of trying to you know, make get that message out into the world. And we've used our networks to do that. And you know, I'm a believer that you know, this story will also reinforce itself and grow from a really strong start that we've we've done so far. At Instech, we have a pretty good feel for what's hot and what's not. And I have to say that Digital Smart Follow is hot right now and everybody is starting to look at it. Congratulations on what Key have done. As, as I'm sorry to finish with a cliche, but you know some lead and others follow. You've very much led the way here. So thank you very much for joining me, Mark. James, fill us in on the details, if you can, about Key and specifically what you're up to with Travelers and Aspen, because I think this is really exciting for the market more broadly. We've been talking about algo trading for a very, very long time. You're the first to bring it to life and make it work. Tell us more. Yeah, I mean, Mark touched on it there and kind of stole my thunder a little bit, but we've been surprised there hasn't been more kind of follow algorithmic plays in the Lloyds market and like beyond that, honestly, over the last kind of three years. So really how this came about was the market approached us and our broken partners approached us and said, hey, look, for there to be a real difference for us to improve our OPEX, we need 100% digital follow. So the 100% of the follow placement needs to be digital. So then we kind of went out to the market and Travers and Aspen have been fantastic supporters of, of Key and of the value proposition. So as of one one twenty four. As a broker logs on to Key, they'll be able to get a line from 1618, Key's own syndicate, but also Travelers and Aspen syndicates as well. So super exciting stuff for us. It's a really transformational model for the broker in the sense that now they can go and get their lead placement, they can get their terms, get their price, and then in theory, they can come to Key and get the rest of the follow placement all um, you know, all within a matter of minutes. So. Is it fair for me to assume that the natural evolution of this is more partners? Exactly, yeah. So... It's no hidden secret. We'll be uh, we'll be trying to expand the platform, you know, for at least a, a couple more 
capacity partners in the early next year. And but the, you know what's important for us at the moment is just trying to launch the platform. We actually launched today. That's why I've made you guys all come to eight eight thirty in the morning to do this podcast. Matthew Bijel, why isn't there more follow syndicates? Why haven't we got like a hundred of these already today? I'm confused. I think in the follow space, Key has led the way. There hasn't really been a competitor in that space. And I'm not sure there is space for another competitor if Key is going to expand to a lot more capacity providers. I think it's incredibly exciting, James, that you've got a lot more capacity providers and brokers just have one place to go. On the other end of the market, we're looking at Algo Lead for the SME space. And that's where we've got one place for brokers to go to buy all of their SME insurance. So that concept of brokers just having one place to go is is what I think the future is. And dig into that for me. So I think commercial specialty is really interesting. I think there will be space for competitors, by the way. There's going to be more. So you've got to keep innovating with Google. No plugs allowed here, but keep innovating and keep innovating fast. SME for the last decade seems to be the, the mass untapped market that no one's gone after. We get asked a hundred times a week, it feels like, we love what Key have done. Can you do it on lead? You've done it. Tell us more. SME is really exciting because that's where you've got a lot more data. So the challenges you have in the specialty space, you see less of that in the SME space. You've got more volume, less heterogeneous risks, more vanilla risks. And that's where you can really expand your scope for automation. It's riskier in the specialty space for very large businesses to start off with lead algorithmic underwriting when there's no data there, but you can do it in the SME space. Now, one of my pet projects, peeves, passions, all of those all at once is education. The education of a commercial risk buyer, I would say, is really, really high. They know exactly what they're going to go and do. The education and understanding of an SME buyer isn't as great as someone in the commercial space. So if you're doing lead for SME, how do we make sure they're getting the right product and the right terms and all those good things? How are we making sure those are educated buyers at the outset? That's actually a really good question. So that's something we've focused a lot on. So we've really focused on data to be able to lead algorithmically underwrite, but not just for that use case. We're also looking at data and analytics and passing that information back to the end customer. So that's something that's also an untapped area of SME is passing data and analytics on a consumer's risk profile back to the end customer so they fully understand the risk they face and they understand the insurance covers they need to mitigate that risk. That's really, really important for us. Couldn't agree more. There's so much to be done in that space. Has to be educating our consumers, our SMEs about what perils they've got, what risk they're prepared to take on or not, more more importantly. Yeah, and your question, Nigel, why hasn't this happened? My view is a couple of things. One is people have been looking at key to see if they're going to be successful. And frankly, we all know not everyone is hoping for it to be successful, but it is. And and there's quite a big investment to build that. And what you're doing with Aurora is a really good example of how that's broadening. Our view is that this is going to happen very quickly and quickly in insurance terms, say probably five years. But Bijal, this is a good transition to a feature we are opening up, which is listeners' questions. So Daniel Pink is long there with Nigel as an enthusiastic listener of the Instec podcast on Sunday morning. And I asked him what he'd like us to talk about. And, and this is the question he came back with, which feels like it's very much linked to you. Hello there, this is Daniel Pink. I'm an actuary at Excel. A question for the podcast as a keen listener who always tends to listen the day it comes out. So my question 
is around MGA. There seems to have been quite an area of growth the last couple of years. And in- increasingly, insurtechs seem to be becoming MGAs and offering their services to incumbents and entering the market this way rather than trying to be disruptors. So do you see this as more the future of the insurtech industry? Or is it just a bit of a cyclical um, label? Thank you. Yeah, sure. So thanks for the question, Daniel. I'm also an actuary by background and we're an MGA, so it feels fitting to answer this question. I may be biased, but I do think MGAs are the future of the insurtech industry. What I see happening is MGAs being used as an accelerator of innovation. A lot of what we do at Aurora is digital transformation of the market that I used to do as a an actuarial consultant. But where incumbents are, it'll take them much longer to innovate and get to the space where we are now because we don't have the legacy. So as MGAs starting out, you, ha- you don't have that legacy. You've got the opportunity to build from scratch using the technology and the data that's out there today. And I just see huge acceleration taking the model of an MGA, taking on the underwriting responsibility and the capacity providers there to solely provide capacity. It's not much different to key being external to Brit. You need to innovate. So how do we do that? Either inside the business or outside the business? And I've seen this for the last 10 plus years where folks said, hey, can we do this internally or do we need a different culture, a different mindset, a different group of people that have different controls and governance? And that feels a little bit like key, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think look like Key wouldn't be here if it wasn't um, wasn't for Brett. But what we tried to do with Key was really do a, a greenfield kind of culture play as well. And yeah, talent is king here. I think what we've really tried to to do with Key is bring the best domain experts in whatever their industry or or domain expertise is. So whether that's data science, whether that's insurance, whatever it might be, bring that together, fuse that together. And actually, Key's kind of secret source really is the fact that underwriters and technologists are equal, and that it's not, you know, the kind of technology side of the business isn't thought of as a as an IT function. It's thought of as, you know, as um, kind of the mover. And without the technology team, the underwriters wouldn't be successful because the underwriters have are like dependent on the technology working and, and vice versa, honestly, as well. Well, this, this trend hasn't changed, right? For years, we've talked about fintechs going after banks because banks move too slowly. We've seen enabling technology in the insurance or insure tech world go after or work with and partner with insurance companies where they've not moved as quickly as the insure techs have wanted. Many of those have gone out and got capacity and capability to go do things. I've seen a trend of that reversing recently to say, actually, distribution is hard and it's expensive. Let's revert back to be just technology providers. I completely agree. I mean, I actually came from the fintech industry before, and I think we're seeing the same trend kind of five, 10 years later in that, you know, the fintechs tried to disrupt the value chain, tried to disrupt the kind of retail banks. Kind of some some succeeded and got some kind of level of scale, but the majority of them actually kind of failed. So they moved to a B two B model from a B two C model, and actually I think we're going through the same transition within within SureTech now. And that's where you see the MGAs kind of flourishing. Actually, is that they're not trying to fundamentally disrupt some of the incumbent players and markets, but they're trying to work with them, you know, and kind of a, I suppose a lock their capacity behind them and try and unlock new products or new opportunities in the market. So are we going to both see you as platforms in the next 12, 24, 36 months available to everyone to use? Let's pause on that thought. Bijal, over to you now. What's been grabbing your attention in the news? So one thing that's really been interesting recently is the loss estimates that have come out of the major catastrophe modelers from Hurricane 
Otis. So Hurricane Otis, this story is, it's an extreme cat event that happened recently on October the 22nd. The hurricane made landfall as a Category 5 storm over the greater Acapulco in Mexico area with maximum sustained winds of 165 miles per hour. What happened after that was the three major catastrophe modelers released their results on their catastrophe loss projections, and they were quite divergent. So CoreLogic estimated 10 to $15 billion in losses, Verisk estimated $3 to $6 billion in losses, and Moody's RMS estimated $2.5 billion to $4.5 billion in losses. So that's really, really different from the three major catastrophe modelers. And shows a lot of uncertainty in the catastrophe modelling projections and leads to a lot of uncertainty in the proje- in the estimates that the insurers then have to incorporate. What do you guys think? Why are the losses so different and are catastrophe models dead? Wow, that's a big question. First and foremost, I want to say we missed Hurricane Nigel, so we should have got this podcast together way earlier, so we're now on to O's. But secondly, the, look, our industry is reliant on data. And we, we talk about it all the time. To get this so wildly different has a massive impact in how we understand the price risks going forward. So depending on your school of thought or your allegiance to one or more of these organizations has a massive impact on what you're going to provide going forward. Ultimately, and we've done a bunch of work with folks like Munichry and others that's that we've shared based on our ability to map the planet, getting access to that and accurate insight to that is going to make a fundamental difference going forward. We've got to be able to normalize that so we can be clear for our industry about what we might going forward. Yeah, I think the thing where we see a key is is just huge amount of leakage. So, like from my point of view, a lot of the the difference in the estimates fundamentally comes down to that. I mean, dates is one thing, obviously, and look at the dates that these um, different vendors came out with their with their estimates. That's definitely one factor. But the, the second factor is is the leakage piece for me. And What do you mean by leakage? So leakage for those listeners that don't know what it is, and I am not an insurance expert. I'm the technology guy in the room. But um, leakage for me is, uh, Nigel shows me his laptop, is assets being claimed for flood where it actually might be wind damage quite typically on on buildings in the US maybe the roof gets taken out by the hurricane however um, there's also water damage and do you claim for flood do you claim for wind and which peril are you claiming for that's a significant element and the second piece is inflation so actually when the claim comes about maybe months later three months six months later um, the price of, of that claim goes up Matthew you spent some time in catastrophe modeling what do you think's going on here yeah, I spent 25 years in catastrophe modelling working with a couple of those companies. It's, it's a really important issue. And if you look at the dates, that gives you us a hint to what's happening. So CoreLogic issued their losses very soon after the event, 27th of October, whereas RMS you know, left it for almost three weeks afterwards. And there's a really interesting balance here that happens in insurance companies where their analysts and their management are really keen to know what the losses were. And also, there's a little bit of like trying to get the PR out. So the risk if you're assessing a loss is to come out too early. And it's a bit of what James said, with a lot of uncertainty in there. I mean, the reality is how these companies actually work out the losses. They'll run their own models, but there's a lot of trying to understand what are the other issues that might not be within the models. And it's quite dangerous to take a look at this as, a, as an indication of the model any good or not, because there's, there's no part of this which is about the, the frequency. But I, as now as an external observer in the industry, I do feel that the modelers need to be very thoughtful about how they're producing loss estimates because it does undermine the credibility of, of the models if they're, they're so wide. And my advice to anybody is, if anybody says, what's your loss estimate, just say no until you're really comfortable with it. And that's kind of where, I don't know where the final loss is going to end up, at, but I suspect it's going to be in that lower range that RMS Moody's came up with. 
thanks for letting me answer the question on leakage, Matthew, considering you used to uh, run one of the main providers in the market. How often do we go back and check our homework? How often do we go back and go, this is our level of accuracy to each one of those? Well, it's a really, a really critical question in terms of how more broadly a lot of the early stage companies were expecting to use lost data from insurance companies to build their tools. So in the early days, catastrophe modeling, before you had high power computing, the insurers would be delighted to get the modelers to review their loss estimates and come back and actually say, this is what you experienced in it. More broadly, the insurers are realizing the value of data and particularly lost data and are far less willing to share lost data at a granular level. You'll get it, you'll get it aggregated. So I think the answer to your question, Nigel, is well, they're kind of checking the homework because you know the answer is wrong. If you put out a large number and four weeks later, it proves you are wrong. It's much harder, unfortunately, these days for any technology company to go back and validate and build models based on lost data from insurers. And, and there are a few collaborations where that is working, but it's, I guess it'd be my request to the insurance industry. If you want to get better tools and models, everything, you know, not just CAP, but cyber or all the areas that Vijay is looking at, the insurers need to find a way to share the data with the people building the tools, because otherwise, how do you calibrate it and how do you test it? In the, the insurers face more risk by not feeding that data back. If they can't refine those results, they won't have adequate reserves. And there's a huge risk there. If they've not got adequate reserves, they've not got enough capital to pay out the losses, they need to be feeding that data back to refine the, the results the CAT modelers are giving them. What do you think about collaboration across the, the major CAT modelers? Do you think that's possible? Yeah, it's moving in the right direction. So we're seeing a couple of things. One is, back to Nigel's point, collaboration around data and data standards. So everybody wins if the data's consistent. You know, no one loses in that game unless you're trying to hide something about your property. So that we're seeing more of that. Another theme is obviously generally like platforms opening up where you've got multiple models on one platform because no insurer wants to be having two or three different platforms to go and work from. So we're starting to see some things, which, you know, credit to Dickie Whitaker at Oasis, he started doing almost 10 years ago now, looking at bringing in different models onto one platform. RMS Moody's is doing that. Verisk is probably still looking at it on the various platform. CoreLogic is now opening up. And then we've got some other items you might talk about shortly. We're seeing in the news for other organizations starting to build platforms as well. And the one I was talking about was Munich Re's CAT AI platform. Again, we've put a blog on, on the website talking about how they're using things like Vision AI and reducing bottlenecks in the actual process to get better estimates of losses very, very quickly. So actually leveraging technology back to all the things that we're talking about today. And then Nigel, a question for you. I mean, Google has got a lot of information about what's out there, physical risks, property. What kind of things are you seeing amongst your colleagues in this area? Yeah, it's really interesting, actually, as you expand out across cloud and then beyond into Alphabet, there's loads of elements and parts of Google that's doing work on this. We announced something last week with DeepMind that was doing things on, on forecasting. Other entities are, of course, looking at wildfire, flood, not just a day ahead or three days ahead, but actually, you know, what if you could look at this sort of stuff a year ahead? So actually, that's been really interesting to connect our insurance partners with different parts of Alphabet to look at that. James, let's see what you've got on the, the news. So for me in the news, the exciting, most exciting thing uh, that I've seen in the last fortnight is Insurance Innovation Hub, Howden Ventures, launches with 500 million underwriting capacities. So for those that, that don't know, Howden Ventures is, is part of uh, the Howden Group, led by a chap called Tom Hode. He used to be head of innovation at TMK and joined Howden to set up Howden Ventures about 12 months ago. So what really is Howden Ventures, what's been put out there in the news is Howden Ventures brings together funding, underwriting capital, expertise, governance, 
and distribution in a single hub for the first time with 500 million of underwriting capacity provided by TMK, Tokyo Marine Kiln, Chaucer and Liberty Specialty Markets and providing significant syndicate underwriting capacity to facilitate the creation of groundbreaking insurance solutions. What does this actually mean? I mean, Nigel, what are your thoughts on this? I love it. I absolutely love it simply because one, Tom's a phenomenal character, but two, the talk and doom and gloom around insurtech and everything else and, and it being difficult, this genuinely says there's huge opportunity in the market and we're providing capacity to continue to innovate across insurance. So this isn't five or 10 or 20 or 50, it's half a billion dollars of capacity, which is a huge commitment to innovation across all markets for us right now. So I'm fascinated to see where it goes. Got lots of exciting attention in the press and rightly so. Bijan? Yeah, I think it's incredibly exciting. As a startup, I know firsthand how difficult it is in the beginning to get capacity, to get investment. And I think this will be a huge stepping stone for new innovation in the market. Those who want have great ideas and have the expertise to innovate, it, this just gives them a huge platform and leg up. You know, one of my questions I used to get all the time back in my Deloitte days was, we've got this really good idea, but we can't get capacity. Nigel, do you have any idea who might write this? And I would spend, like James said earlier, a good amount of time just connecting the dots, which is my favorite thing in the world, to go, I think this might be right for you. Can I make the connection? So it might be the right product. And there was loads of things that we got off the ground and loads of things that we didn't. So seeing capacity like this is really great. Yeah, it can only be a good thing. I mean, another platform to to stimulate innovation, to stimulate change in the market is only a good thing. And kudos to the Howden Group and team to, um, to setting this up because, you know, it takes a lot of uh, good faith as well to put this type of investment both on capacity, but also for the funding side of these businesses forward. So Matthew, what's your take? Is Howden the right place for this? Is others going to follow very quickly? I hope so. I mean, I look at it from what we refer to as an insurance gap. There's different numbers out there, but there's, we all know there's a massive amount of assets and risks that's not insured today or, or not even just physical assets. One of the most recent examples that brings this home to me, I was chairing a panel at the, the onshore energy conference, but we were also covering offshore. And Hannah Arbo, who is the risk manager for a Danish investment fund, echoing one of the themes that was talk, came from all the panelists, you've all got these large assets for organizations that are moving to, to transitioning risks. She's got, or her company's got $100 billion, and I actually checked, it was billion, yes, $100 billion of assets to insure a lot of it's in offshore uh, wind farms, renewables, transitioning risk, and they can't find the insurance capacity for it. So I think the important thing about this had an announcement, just, it's implicit, and we talked a bit about it, but this is there to generate new protection, new sources of revenue for insurance. It's separate, which is also you know, very valid building technology, but it's, the key thing is, excuse the pun, James, is bringing more capacity into the market, which ultimately is what insurance is there for. And it comes back to, Nigel, your mantra about, I love insurance, I love insurance, because it can solve my problem. Just as a complete aside, A, you must get that pun all the time about key. But two, I took my family on holiday. We were in California and I made them stop at a wind farm. I absolutely love these damn things. They are brilliant feats of engineering. I've actually cycled through France where you hear these things whirling around. So if you ever get a chance to go and see a wind farm, do the deep dive into them. They are just fascinating pieces of I've got a question for everybody. If you had to take a building, a well-known building, as an example of the height, the size they're building turbines today. I can ask each of you to take a punt on this. Start with you, Nigel, because you seem to be a wind turbine expert. What would you think would be a building that represent the height of a wind turbine today? It's going to be three times the size of the Gherkin. James? 
I'm going to go with the, uh, I forget the name of it, but the one at Elephant Castle, because it does quite literally have three wind turbines on top of it. That's tiny. Yes, that's, Elephant Castle is uh, South London with the three wind turbines that can't actually turn on because it shakes the whole building. That's actually a great <laughs> thing, yeah. yeah. Oh, that was, my ne- that was what I was <laughs> going to say next. If you're in London, look south from a high building and you'll see it uh, over there. Have they never gone on? They no, they, when they go on, they shake the whole building. So yeah, yeah. Never. and there are loads of residents. So. Uh, There's going to be a risk story and insurance story around that. I Sorry, Bijal, your yeah. answer. Uh, when you said three times the gherkin, I was thinking the shard. You're right, spot on. So actually, if the gherkin, for anybody who doesn't know, is what used to be called a Swiss rebuilding, is now some Mary Axe, I'm going to forget what number it is. Yeah, the 30. shard, which most people will be familiar with. You imagine a wind turbine the size of the shard, and if that, something happens to that, a wind, I mean, a, just, just can imagine what would happen if one of those blades falls off, which they do occasionally or they catch fire. I mean, so that's part of the problem is that no or very few insurers are willing to actually take on that kind of risk. And the offshore ones are actually much bigger than the ones that are onshore. The wind farm that I was at in uh, Palm Springs had 1,400 turbines on there that get changed over time. Uh, we're going to go off into a completely different episode here because the US electrical network, electricity network is very different to the UK network and it's getting about getting the capacity back into it from things like that is actually quite challenging. For the, uh, for the, the next episode, episode, can we send Robin uh, on a field trip to uh, wind turbines <laughs> from in the Palm very Springs? Top, yeah. From the very top, I'd love to or volunteer we'll take a volunteer who wants to go on a field trip and come Great. back and report on we'll get someone in palm on. springs to go look at them it's <laughs> actually it's it's fascinating it really is so nigel you for the last few years have been doing your predictions you kind of cheated because you've you've also been scoring yourself so if no, no other takeaway from this can you get someone else to score them for you yeah. but so you seem to have done all right but we thought we might crowdsource it from the group maybe someone else has got some ideas i guess you are doing your predictions this year are you it's a good question they're actually really hard to do uh, especially post-COVID. Uh, I took a pause actually for a year or two just to reflect on what was going on. So um, I will crowdsource. I'm going to start with Bija. What do you think? So I'm cheating a little bit. I've got insider knowledge. But one key piece of innovation I see over the next year is we focused a lot on digitization of pricing and underwriting and technology in different parts of the, the insurance ecosystem. But one part of the ecosystem that hasn't been digitized is policy wordings. And that's something we're working on at Aurora. I know other companies are working on it. So AXA, for example, have partnered with Stanford University to look at this innovation. And the innovation is just starting out. And I see that breaking through, hopefully by us, but you never know, uh, breaking through next year. Um, so digitization of policy wordings. That's a really interesting one. We could talk about this for quite a while. My good friend, Mr. Chris Cheatham, built a company called Risk Genius a few years back, implemented by folks like QBE and others that did policy wording comparisons and so much more. We haven't actually mentioned the word so far, so I'm about to get the gong for it. But along comes generative AI and mass corpuses of information, the the ability to compare things, that makes that very easy to do. Other folks around London like Claws Match are doing some really cool things in that space. So um, yeah, a really interesting one. James? Well, firstly, I'm going to double check after we actually record this podcast, make sure you haven't used BARD or otherwise to uh, to come up with your top 10 predictions. Um, but the one for me is, I mean, it's uh, the fact that we've got two algo underwriters in the room. So algo underwriting is going to become mainstream in 2024. I quite like that. Did we say that in 2023 as well? We actually didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew? Well, it's a bit of a cheat, really, but there'll be one major event sadly it'll be a loss that once it's happened we'll all be going why do we never think of that you know it's that classic black swan i'd recommend anybody read that book actually nasan talib it's a fantastic book well certainly halfway through as far as i've got after that 
this goes on a bit. But this whole point about these, these black swans are events that actually are so big and so different that we never anticipated them. And certainly in my career, you know, catastrophe modeling and beyond, I'd say 50% of the events that have occurred have actually been never contemplated. So do, you my, think, do you think that'll be, sorry to interrupt, do you think that'll be a, in a particular class? Is it something that's come to mind or do you think it'll just be a, you know? That's my cheat. Like, I mean, that's my, the whole point is you just, no, it could just be something we cyber? just, we, we just, we haven't had a cyber catastrophe, touch wood. Yeah, like a, a cyber catastrophe I would define as where you get. Maybe a systemic risk. Systemic risk and you get it happening lots lots of different, different industries and, and that, we haven't had those. Might be that, but I guess the whole point is, and my kind of cheat is uh, we're going to get something. I mean, we've seen it. If you look back, what's happened in the last two years with Ukraine and Russia, with what's going on in Gaza just now, with Brexit, with the Suez Canal, all these things that have happened that you know two or three years earlier, we would a year earlier, we wouldn't have ever expected. A couple of takeaways from this one. Number one, you've all mentioned that you're cheating. So that's really interesting to know. But thank you for being honest about cheating. Number two, the quote that uh, Justin Trudeau used years ago at one of the World Economic Forums, I think is really interesting. I still use it to this day. Never before have we moved this fast and never again will it be this slow again. So it just tells you that the pace of change out there is always going to get faster. I say things like, we're never going to have less technology in houses or cars, as an example. There's always going to be more technology in houses and cars. So that pace is picking up. I think our geopolitical environment right Right now is in a very delicate space world over. I think it's felt in different places uh, at different levels. There's an energy crisis going on throughout Europe. It's not felt as much in the US right now. So living across the two, it's it's really interesting to observe as both a consumer and someone working in, in the sector. The one for me, and again, I, I think we touched on it a, a, a little bit, the buzz around generative AI is not going to slow down, but the focus of generative AI, specifically in insurance, for me is going to de- is going to double click into really interesting things that we couldn't do before. Today we've picked up on some really easy use cases around underwriting, appetite, claims, service, all things that will accelerate the digitization, but actually the reimagining of our business, the how do we take a massive corpus of information from our our insights and our data to create much more customized and insightful products that are fit for the actual needs will become mainstream. So actually, we're just building confidence today. Tomorrow, it's going to get really interesting. Well, Nigel, you've, 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 there's actually been a fifth person in the room we haven't properly acknowledged. You've been typing away on your computer, cheating, getting answers from Bard. Oh. Maybe next time we have to invite Bard into the discussion. You know, I'm sure you can link up some Bard.google.com in any, in any language that you want. It is a phenomenal source. Okay, quick commercial break for us. Look, we're great fans of collaboration and we've got some ideas for a title, but we'd much rather know what the world thinks should be the, the best title. So if you've got any ideas for a title please do let us know. You can contact Nigel, he's everywhere, you'll find him, or me, Matthew Grant, on LinkedIn, or Matthew at instec.co. So there's loads of news out there. The fact we got to three is phenomenal. Folks, if you want to find out more about Aurora and Bijal, where can we find you? Bijal Patel on LinkedIn, or Aurora Insurance on LinkedIn. Fantastic. James? Key-insurance.com, otherwise just James Birch. Brilliant. And we all know where to find you, Matthew. LinkedIn, or Matthew at instec.co. Or an, on your favorite podcast channel on a Sunday morning, as I do, listening in every week religiously. Uh, for me, it's Nigel Walsh at LinkedIn, or you'll find me equally on Twitter, making insurance lovable. Matthew, where do we go next? Well, well, we'll track how many people listen. If we get more than five, then I reckon we should do another episode because I certainly enjoyed this. We'd love to hear anybody's thoughts on topics to cover, questions to ask, how to make it better or different. And uh, we'll 
figure out, Nigel, when you're back in the ground or wherever in the US, you can do this face-to-face again. I quite like seeing your face when we're talking. Fantastic. That's it from us. See you all next time. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was great fun to record. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did uh, bringing it together. Please do let us know what you think. Don't forget to send in those questions. We'll be releasing the new podcast series soon. Well, as long as you like it and listen to this. Uh, but back to the regular Instinct podcast as well, coming out weekly. That's it. We're done for now.